another episode of Gladio Free Europe. I'm Russian Sam, and I am joined by my co-host, Halal Sam. Hello. And today we have the great privilege of having with us poster extraordinaire, Carl Zha. Uh, how are you, Carl? Yeah, thank you. I have to refrain from saying, uh, welcome to my podcast. Normally, I'm the host. <laughs> yeah, well, this time we're the boss. Yeah, so uh, how's Bali treating you? Uh, it's still hot. We are in the rainy season right now, so it's been rainy nonstop. This is actually one of the rare day that's actually sunny outside, but I am inside my studio recording with you guys. Uh, well, hopefully you can uh, enjoy the sun for a bit after we're done with you. But uh, uh, today we uh, brought Carl on to uh, discuss a 2007 movie called Lust Caution, uh, which is based on a novella of the same name. Uh, written in 1979 by Eileen Chang. Uh, it's a very short novella. It's only around 60 pages, and the story was significantly expanded in the film itself. Uh, it was directed by Ang Lee, who is a Taiwanese director who has some very uh, eclectic choices in terms of directing. Like He's famous for like Chinese films like Eat, Drink, Man, Woman and The Wedding Banquet, but also Brokeback Mountain and Hulk. <laughs> So, Carl, uh, how would you uh, summarize this movie? Um, <laughs> I have very mixed feelings. Uh, actually, I don't have mixed feelings. I, I'm not a not a fan. Not a fan. Um, I I actually know a little bit about the novel the movie was based on. You know, wh- after watch the movie, I mean, artistically, it's very artfully executed, all the cinematography and everything, and the act actors, actress, um, uh, they're they're great. I mean, the the actress Tong Wei and the uh, actor uh, Tony uh, Luen, they're 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 both very great actors. But <laughs> I have a problem with the execution of the movie, mainly the plot. Maybe you should tell the audience what the plot was. Uh. So basically the TLDR version is that uh, the central female protagonist is a young woman named Wang Jiazi, who is a young Chinese woman who flees to Hong Kong after the war begins in 1937. And she's unable to go to England where her father is because, because of the war. So she decides to go to university in Hong Kong where she befriends uh, this theater troupe who put on patriotic plays to motivate uh, the Hong Kong people to resist uh, Japanese aggression. And, and in the process, uh, these uh, students who, who have no idea what they're doing, if we're being honest, they decide that they're going to um, assassinate a certain man named Mr. Yi, who is visiting Hong Kong to recruit others to work for what was going to become the Wang Jingwei government. The collaborationist government. government. Yeah, she disguises herself as the wife of a traitor, and she... Uh, seduces Yi. The the first plot fails, uh, the one that takes place in 1938. But afterwards, uh, the movie goes to the future, to Shanghai in uh, 1942, and uh, they resume operations uh, once again. As I've said, uh, the movie is based on, on a novel by Eileen Chang. And Eileen Chang was basing the events of the novel both on her own life, um, as well as the life of a Chinese resistance hero named Zhang Pingru, who is uh, more similar to to the protagonist of this movie, I'd say. So, Carl, what do you know about Eileen Chang? Um, so, Eileen Chang is a fa- famous uh, Chinese novelist, but uh, I don't know if you guys uh, heard about this. Uh, so, she, she moved to Hong Kong and then later United States. But while she was in Hong Kong, this was... This was after the communist takeover. Um, actually, this was after World War II of 1945. And her novels start to get sponsorship by like the CIA program. 
<coughs> the program is not specifically、uh, sponsoring like explicit anti-communist material, but the aim was to encourage the trend in the novel fiction writer community to focus more on personal, to to focus more on like interpersonal stories rather than. Uh, explicitly political, so so it's trying. It's so the whole purpose of the CIA program is depoliticize kind of the write writers community and and to move away、uh, from writing about politics. But、uh, Eileen Chang has a very interesting biography because she grew up in Shanghai and she was、um, while during the Japanese occupation period. Uh, she became involved with a famous uh, uh, collaborator, um, you know, collaborator. Yeah, Su Lanchang. And, and so that's that's why the the book she wrote, on which the film is based on, is partly you know kind of autobiographical. You know, it's kind of partly based on her own experience.、Um, but I like to point out、uh, there's a important discrepancy between the novel and the. Film ending.、Uh, sorry, can we do film spoilers? Because absolutely, yeah, totally fine. <laughs> yeah, it's hard not to do the spoiler when we're discussing the theme of the movie. Okay, so in the end, the the plot to assassinate the、uh, the, the they basically try to honeypot the the collaborator in the movie.、Um, but that in the in the final. Crucial moment when they set up the trap and about to assassinate the collaborator, which was the, they have been what they have been working toward for like all these years. The protagonist, she had a change of heart. I mean, she she had a weak spot.、Uh, she had a weak, basically a, a moment of sympathy for the for the guy they're supposed to assassinate. So she alerted him of their plot, and then they were all arrested.、Uh, the, the collaborator escapes. The, the 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 entire team got rounded up, arrested, and executed. But there is a very important discrepancy between the novel and the movie because in the novel, the collaborator after after his one time lover, the protagonist was executed. He goes back to his house. He lights up a cigarette, and he was pretty proud of himself for you know oh this having this young woman willing. To sacrifice herself for him, and and he thought, yeah, he still got it. You know, he he was pretty. He was, there was no remorse. He didn't really show remorse, regret over the death of this young woman.、Uh, but he 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 was more proud of you know. Yeah, he still got it. That was totally changed in the movie because the movie made him more sympathetic,、uh, and so that that this is a real. Problem I have with this movie because it didn't even stay faithful to the to the novel. I I mean I I understand you know Tony Luan Liang is a very uh a talented actor have many fans, but that's no reason to change the character he was portraying to be in a more sympathetic light. I mean I I don't know what Anne Lee is trying to do here. Um, I feel like yes, in some respect, it is problematic. But I think that Angli did a great job of really fleshing out the story. But again, yes, there is the question of why is this Mister Yi, who is a total monster, someone who just takes life without batting an eyelash, why is he this、uh, more sympathetic? This Mister Yi, he was actually based on a real personality. And second element that、uh, really inspired the story is the life of, of a woman named Zhang Pingru. 
who was born in 1918, and she was uh, born to a Chinese revolutionary father and a Japanese mother in Shanghai. So she was fluent in Japanese. And because of this, uh, she was a very valuable asset for the nationalists who to recruit her to seduce this this man named uh, Ding Motsun, who who was the secret police chief in Shanghai. And uh, she had known him briefly because he was the principal of her school at one point. So she seduces him. And finally, in December 1939, uh, she took Ding to a shop, um, ostensibly to buy a coat. And, and there were agents in place, um, assassins to, to kill him. But he noticed the men loitering and he just ran to his car before he could be killed. He realized that uh, Zheng was part of the uh, resistance and had her arrested. Uh, she was executed in 1940 and Ding Motun would himself be, be executed as a collaborator in 1947. Me personally, I think that it's a very masterfully done film, even though it is very sexually graphic. Spoiler alert, if you do decide to watch this, please note that there is a very graphic rape scene. But yeah, this movie was first released in China to great fanfare. There was a big promotional campaign, but uh, the Chinese media board actually took issue with it because there were these graphic sex scenes. And so um, advertisements and promotions were halted. And the actress who played Wang Jiazi, Tang Wei, she, uh, she ended up not working in movies for several years because they had not approved of her. But but the larger issue was the portrayal of Zheng Pingru. Uh, we actually found a story from the time. Sam, if you would like to read this. Sure. The real story behind Lust Caution Revealed. September 14, 2007. Zhang Jingzi, apologies for terrible pronunciation, an old woman of 80 plus, currently lives in Los Angeles. She is Zheng Pingru's younger sister. Zhang stated that in the film that the film diverts too far from the actual life of Zhang Pingru. Zheng said that she could understand how art exaggerates and distorts real life, according to the artist's imagination, but she couldn't accept the fact that the film, the film viewers would relate to her sister as a heroine who indulged in lustful acts. She stated that such a portrayal was disrespectful to a pr- person who had sacrificed her life for her country. After the assassination plot failed, the Japanese puppet regime agreed that if her father would work for them, they would set at, uh, Zheng Pingru free. Although he clearly loved his daughter, Zheng Yi refused their request. Zhang Jingzhi said that although she was only 12 or 13 years old at the time, she could still certainly remember everything. Yes, and I get the impression that this was a very common sentiment within China itself, that like it sullies uh, the name of this martyr to the Chinese resistance. Uh, but if I may play devil's advocate a little bit here, I feel like although clearly there is inspiration from the life of Zhang Pingru, uh, as well as Eileen Chang's own life, this isn't really meant to be an accurate telling of a story. Rather, uh, the sense that I got is that this was Eileen Chang trying to come to terms with the fact that she was married to someone who had collaborated with the regime. And so she, in a way, I feel like she was trying to um, to imagine herself as having been braver, as someone who was more along the lines of, uh, of Zheng Pingru herself rather than someone who meekly supported her collaborator husband uh, from the sidelines. I, I, I like that interpretation, actually. Um, <clears throat> I, and like I say, if you read the novel, the uh, collaborator is not a sympathetic character. I mean, especially if you read that to the end. But the, the movie changed that. So that, that's my biggest gripe with the, with the movie. I said the movie was very artfully executed. Cinematography was great. The storytelling is great. But I just don't know what Anne Lee is trying to, you know, what is the theme, main thing of the story Anne Lee is trying to convey here? Because by changing that ending, by humanizing this, this monster, it's 
almost like An Li is tur- turning this whole story into like a love story, like a tragic love tale, which wasn't really. I don't think that was the 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 original intent of Eileen Chan, even when she wrote the novel. I'm absolutely not. But regardless of Ang Lee's intentions, I kind of have to praise him for the effort because I felt like this film also explores the reasons why certain Chinese felt that they should collaborate with the Japanese, and of course they should be morally condemned for doing so. But at the same time, I really wanted to. Get at what made these people tick. Why did they decide that this was the right decision to be made? And I'm uncomfortable with the framing of them as being purely Japanese puppets, if that makes sense. I think that these were personalities who had their own complex、uh, reasons. Not that we should make excuses for them, but we should try to understand how they came to that conclusion. And、uh, that's a very wild story in and of itself. Isn't that ultimately what they became, though? Japanese puppets. So I think there are different <clears throat> level of collaboration, right? I mean, like there, there were a lot of people who served in the Japanese puppet、uh, regime during World War Two, and there are different people, like you said, different people get in for different reasons. You know, some people had to do it because they were forced to. Some people took a pro more proactive role. In collaborating with Japanese, for example, in the Japanese-occupied、uh, North China, a lot of the you know the Jap- Japanese、um, basically made all the occupied area, all the village head, effectively their their collaborator by forcing them to to collect taxes and enforcing the Japanese imposed rules. But at the same time, you know, some of these village heads also collaborated with. The underground resistance, you know, both the KMT and the communist. So, 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 you know, some of them were playing the both sides, of course. I mean, and some of them are trying to stay in power. Some of them are just trying to stay, staying alive. So, yes, there, there are various motivations. You know, we, we, we shouldn't deny the human agency of these actors. But at the same time, I think there is definitely degree of collaboration. There are people who willingly collaborated with Japanese for the sake of, you know, power or or monetary gains. Yes, um, exactly. But before we get into that, I thought it would be nice to give a quick overview of the history of Sino-Japanese relations. So Japan first appears in the Hohan Shu,、uh, which was the Book of Later Han, in an entry from the first century CE. They are、uh, described as Wa,、uh, which is quite a funny word because it basically means dwarf barbarian. And they're also mentioned in in the Wei Zhi, which was、uh, the Chronicles of the State of Wei. And they were one of many, many different barbarian peoples who had fallen into the Chinese orbit. So the character for Wa, some people say, is、uh, you know means dwarf barbarian. But I I think that's a term that became acquired that meaning over the years later. Because Wa is the sound Wa is actually what the Japanese call their state themselves. But then, how Wa is transliterated into the Chinese character, you know, into Wa. Initially, it was just a straight phonetic trans- transliteration, but over the years, because the more recent history, I think the Wat did acquire the derogatory meaning as a dwarf pirate. Wa was one of、uh, Chiang Kai-shek's favorite terms. He would constantly refer to the Japanese as Wa. 
So that term、uh, really stuck around for a long time. The Wa is like kind of the ancient name, the Japanese for Japan themselves. But but later they 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 <laughs> when they also become aware of the derogatory term、uh, that evolved, they switched to Yamato. Um, so yeah, which is still the name for the Japanese people themselves. Yeah. So this is from the Chronicles of the State of Wei. <clears throat> Leaving the Queen's land and crossing the sea to the east after a voyage of one thousand li,、uh, the country of Gongnuguo, which translates to country of dog slaves, is reached. The people of which are of the same race as the Wa. They are not the Queen's subjects, however. Four thousand li away to the south of the Queen's land, the dwarf's country is reached. Its inhabitants are three to four feet in height. Just found that a bit humorous, especially、uh, the term applied Gongnuguo, which again, country of dog slaves. These old Chinese sources—they are clearly、uh, very demeaning towards many of these、uh, peoples whom they consider to be barbarians. But there's also another very interesting aspect to this, namely uh, seals—not uh, the animal, just like seals that like you seal letters shut with. They were an important part of Chinese kingship as symbols of legitimacy. The most famous example is the jade seal of Qin Shi Huang,、uh, which was very valued and was basically seen to like. Give the mandate of heaven, but it was lost sometime after the Tang Dynasty. And so, what the Chinese would do in the Han period is they would gift seals to the kings of tributary states to show that you guys are are the kings of your own states. There's a rather interesting passage in in the Book of Later Han, which states that in 57 CE, the Na State of Wu、uh, sent an envoy with tribute. The envoy introduced himself as a high official. The state lies to the south of Wu. Emperor Guangwu bestowed upon him a seal, and what's interesting about this precisely is that in 1784, what might have been the seal is found. Granted,、uh, some have argued that it might have been a late medieval forgery, but it is kind of similar to other Chinese seals, which are known to be legitimate. So, Carl, when would you say Japan really started to enter、uh, the Chinese sphere, not just as a vassal, but as a state that? Uh, looked up to Chinese values and literature and architecture and things like that. Well, I think it's important to note the you know that you you talk about the granting the seal story. It's、uh, actually quite similar to how the Roman Empire handles relations with、uh, periphery states and people. You know, by granting titles and gifts. Yeah, place within the system. Exactly, and this is、uh, also for the Chinese themselves kind of confirm their belief that their empire is at the center of civilization. At the same time, these、uh, grant by granting titles, you offer confers privilege. To the the people who receive them among their own people, so so the chiefs and the kings who receive these seals, you know, use it as a symbol of legitimacy among their own subject. But this is a, as you mentioned, this is this early contact happened very early on, you know, during the later Han and later Three Kingdoms period.、Uh, but because Japan is so far, the mention of direct contact are far and few in between. Most of the time, Japan actually received the Chinese culture. Via intermediary on the Korean Peninsula, so like the different Korean states of like Bakche, for example. But until I think it's only during Tang Dynasty,、uh, we're talking about seventh century. 
that when Japan finally start like a massive scale of cultural exchange program where they would send emissaries to the Tang Dynasty capital uh, to learn everything about China, the laws, culture, religion, and then bring them wholesale back to Japan. So that's I think that's when the really kind of the more intensive cultural exchange happened. Uh, and mostly it was one way. It was mostly from China to Japan. Yeah, I mean, it was very one-sided. Basically, uh, the Japanese imported um, architectural styles, uh, classical Chinese literature, uh, the writing system. They didn't have a writing system before the Tang Dynasty, really. Um, as well as Buddhism. And basically, like, China and everything China inspired would be called Kangaku, Chinese studies over there. So Japan would sort of have an on-again, off-again relationship as a tributary of China, uh, not really unproblematically. So, for example, around the same time as they're sending these emissaries to the Tang Dynasty, they're also fighting against uh, Chinese troops on the Korean Peninsula around 660-ish, because the kingdom that they had been allied to uh, was fighting a war against a kingdom that was allied with China. So Japanese troops and Chinese troops were fighting each other a very long time ago. Uh, but there were also other uh, contacts. So, for example, uh, the Mongol Yuan dynasty made two very famous uh, disastrous attempts to capture J Japan, but they were repelled by the so-called kamikaze, divine winds both times. So their fleets just were not able to actually reached uh, the mainland. Benefits of being an island. Yes, yes. But the main standoff between Japan and China uh, really happened in the 1590s when Totoyomi uh, Hideyoshi launched a massive invasion uh, of the Korean Peninsula and even had plans to capture uh, Chinese territory. And we're talking about massive numbers of troops on both sides here. The Japanese went with something like 200,000 soldiers. And they made quite a bit of progress on the Korean Peninsula itself before uh, they finally ran into Chinese troops. But in addition to these formal like acts of state, there was also the problem of so-called Japanese pirates Weren't they not all actually Japanese? No, many of them were not actually Japanese. They were just operating out of Japan. Many of them were Chinese themselves. They were Some were Japanese, some were Moroccan. It was a mix of people. And these people uh, caused a lot of problems for Ming maritime activity, as well as uh, the coastal areas, which some scholars think had something to do with why the Ming dynasty decided to close its uh, more maritime routes. Yeah, it's actually specifically because uh, closing of the borders actually was specifically responding to uh, two raids by the Japanese uh, pirates in the vicinity of Ningbo on the east, uh, China's east coast. And so from, from then on, uh, Japan was forbidden to directly trade with China. That actually prompted uh, Satsuma clan to take over uh, Luchu Kingdom on Okinawa because Luchu Kingdom at the time was a tributary state of China and thus allowed to trade with China. So they found a backdoor way to trade with China by subjugating the Luchu Kingdom in Okinawa. Japan and China being one of the largest economy in East Asia, there was a lot of trade between these two, especially because China at the time was uh, it was switched back to a silver currency and there's not enough silver inside China, but the a huge silver mine was discovering in Japan. So there was a lot of demand for silver in China and there's a lot of demand for Chinese silk. So so there's a lot of, uh, because of forbidden of the, the direct trade between China and Japan, there was a lot of uh, you know, smuggling going on, carry 
owned by these so-called Japanese pirates. I mean, there's always a fine line between pirates and merchant anyway <laughs> in those times. Oh, absolutely. And this ad is not just something inclusive to East Asia. That's also something you see in Europe and Mediterranean. Yeah, once you, you're out of the the, 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 the side of the shore, you pay pretty much a free for all on the high seas. Exactly. So going back to Kangaku, Chinese studies, around the middle of the 18th century, in response to a bunch of domestic crises faced by the Tokugawa shogunate, there was a rise in something called Kokugaku, which was national studies, which was basically the belief that Chinese ways were detrimental to the Japanese spirits and ways of living. It was basically a very xenophobic uh, conception of, uh, of the Japanese people. And Kokugaku, it was sort of popular on again, off again, but it really took off around the time uh, of the Meiji Restoration. Yeah, you know, everyone knows the whole thing about Commodore Perry coming in. But basically, after his intimidation campaign in 1853 to open up Japan to American trade, uh, Japan was just flung into a crisis, and it ended up with the Meiji Restoration, which was the basically the emperor and the people around him and his allies, sponsored, I believe, by the British, taking over the government from the shogunate system. The shogunate system was replaced, and the emperor actually reigned again. Feudal institutions were done away with. Uh, the military uh, was reformed and... Uh, modernized education, economic, all that. Everything was modernized in a Western way, I suppose. I was just going to say there was actually a thought at the time, a slogan, if you will, called um, leaving Asia, uh, joining Europe in Japan. The idea is that the Asian, East Asian way has become decadent and corrupt and Japan should cast off the shell of kind of the East Asian culture and joining the modern civilization of Europe. Which is an easy sell if you already believe that you're better than these people. You're right, of course. And and that, that uh, to couple with that belief is that countries like China and, and Korea, you know, has been corrupted in their ways. And they, they, they're the ones that hopelessly mire in the past. But Japan is different. Japan is modern and forward looking. Like they, it, it, Japan should not considered be the peer of you know likes of china and korea but among the modern nations of the europe yeah they wanted their peers not to be china or korea they wanted their peers to be britain and france yeah but at the same time ultimately the majority of people didn't really want to become europeans per se they wanted to hold on to japanese institutions and japanese religion so for example shinto at this period was made into a state of religion. So like basically they wanted to create a synthesis between this pure Japanese way of living as well as the technologies which would allow Japan to rise above its neighbors. I think at the time of Meiji Restoration, there's a lot of like intellectual fervent. There's all kind of ideas going around, right? I mean, there's there's one idea is uh, leaving Asia, joining Europe. But later, especially uh, later on, when they realize that you know the European nations are hopelessly racist, they will never accept Japan as equal partners. There's more focus turning inward to you know kind of emphasis on kind of the quintessential. Japanese uh, superiority, you know, the, the more emphasis placing on the uniqueness of the Japanese culture and how it is superior to everything else. Uh, yes, but again, this idea was also present uh, during the Meiji Restoration under the slogan of Sono Joy, which uh, translates to um, expel the barbarians, promote the emperor. So, uh, yeah, it was a very intellectually interesting place with many different currents of thought. 
it didn't necessarily have to turn out the way that it did is basically the point well it it did and it all and it set japan on a collision course with a lot of its neighbors it, well, well, not a collision course, a course for invasion. It's interesting. They started out as a reaction to the foreign encroach- encroachment, particularly Commodore Perry's forced opening of Japan, because uh, da- daimyos, uh, the feudal lords of Satsuma and uh, and Choshu, particularly saw that Tokugawa shogunates were weak to resist Western imperialism. So that that their their rally cry was exactly Sono Joy, the, you know, support the emperor, expel the barbarians. But uh, curiously, what happened after they actually succeeded to replace the shogun government is that the reformist wing took power and then... All the all the reactionary element that, that that wanted to return to like kind of a past where uh, foreigners are expelled and 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 Japan goes back to living an isolationist world. Those people were pushed out of the power. <laughs> it's the reformists who took power uh, in the in the new Meiji uh, era and 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 push full on modernization program in Japan. So there's like kind of different currents battling at the time like yeah there's a lot of intellectual fervent there's a lot of different ideas there's a lot of changing course of the japanese uh, society itself yes not quickly this change in course would result in the sino-japanese war of 1894 to 1895 uh, which was basically fought to put korea into the japanese sphere of influence as well as uh, making taiwan into a japanese colony And this would really serve as a blow to the idea of Chinese primacy in Asia, because, uh, again, for thousands of years, China had been the top dog. There was no question that anyone could be superior. And suddenly Japan, uh, which was supposed to be like this good old tributary state that's ultimately derivative uh, of China, suddenly defeats them. And, and this had a very, very demoralizing effect. And, and this would only continue. Japan would be the only non-European power to invade China in 1900 during the Boxer Rebellion. The Russo-Japanese War. Uh, yes, exactly. The Russo-Japanese War. Finally, uh, in 1905, uh, Japan went to war against Russia, basically over the future of Korea as well as Manchuria. Most of the battle is fought in Chinese territory, by the way. <laughs> Especially most of the land battle all fought in Manchuria. But in the end, Japan, uh, Korea becomes a Japanese protectorate. Yeah, yeah. The Sino-Japanese War was basically about uh, putting Korea into a more Japanese orbit rather than a Chinese one. And then finally, when the Russo-Japanese War happens, they finally cement uh, protectorate status over the Korean Peninsula itself, as well as in Manchuria and at the Liaodong Peninsula. Uh, which was where the Kwangtung army would be stationed, um, ostensibly to protect Japanese railroads and business interests. But uh, let's just say that uh, the heads of the Kwangtung army uh, took some rather bold initiatives. Well, I, I just like to point out that uh, even after the first Sino-Japanese war where Japanese decisively defeated the Qing government, there was a shock in China in that China was defeated. But it didn't necessarily result in anti-Japanese sentiment in China because after that flood of Chinese students went to Japan to study because they saw Japan as like the successful Asian nation that that successfully modernized. And because the Japanese, uh, you know, they still use the same uh, Chinese writing system. So so it's a lot easier for the Chinese students to absorb all these uh, 
kind of basically is a Western concept, but via a Japanese lens. Uh, what was the Japanese government's stance on this uh, influx of Chinese students? Oh, they they initially encouraged it because they thought that they will help uh, these Chinese students to come away with uh, more pro-Japan views. So so they encouraged the, the Chinese students to come to Japan and study. It was also encouraged by the Qing government itself. You know, Qing government actually sponsored many uh, of these Chinese students to go study in the hope of, uh, you know, they will bring back the knowledge to modernize China itself. That's why a lot of these also early revolutionaries would base themselves in Japan, like Sun Yat-sen. And Sun Yat-sen himself received many support from, interestingly, ultra-nationalist Japanese organization like the Black Dragon Society. And because, you know, at the time, these... Uh, uh, a black dragon society is still uh, uh, pushing ostensibly pan-Asianist ideas that you know the, uh, the all the Asians need to work together to push the European out. Of course, you know ultimately that was to serve kind of the Japanese imperial aim, but it just so happened at the time you match the needs of the Chinese revolutionary to overthrow the Qing government and and so the, the two side two side work together and and you know that's why Chiang Kai-shek himself was also educated in Japan uh, in a Qing government sponsored program to have young prospective uh, officers to train in the Japanese military academy I'm even Zhou Enlai if I'm not mistaken uh, was a student in Japan for for some time yes Zhou Enlai Lu Xun Everyone. So uh, going back to China, let's first talk about what happened to cause China to decline so precipitously. We, this is this is the big time. I didn't realize when this we is a big. This is this is its own episode, frankly. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll offer my two cents. Uh, I mean, China basically became the victim of its own success because China enjoyed a long period of peace during the high, so-called High Qing, the 18th century. From start from Kangxi Emperor to the Qianlong Emperor, the, the reign of three emperors, there's almost more than 100 years between them. China enjoyed unprecedented peace and stability that allowed the population to triple uh, from 100 million to 300 million uh, towards the end of the Qianlong's reign. That actually created a Malthusian problem on China because the land was nearing its carrying capacity when suddenly, you know, it, there's 300 million souls need to be fed. Uh, you know, this this created all kind of ecological problems, which Europe, you know, had the benefit of, um, you know, Europe was facing the similar population pressure, but they, Europe had the benefit of uh, having huge overseas colonies, especially North America after after the especially the natives of uh, of the Americas got wiped out by epidemics and disease and so so the, these are the kind of the eco- ecological constraint faced by the by China at the same time at the same time the Chinese government at the time was actually a lot more decentralized and you would say less effective than uh, the Western government because while uh, throughout Napoleonic War, all the Western states are in the constant competition, constant war that forced the, the Western government to develop like financial system, the mod- modern bond system. They also forced uh, the, the different uh, states to, to continue to innovate. That was lacking in China because remember, China was at peace at this time. At the same time, the the, the Chinese uh, governance uh, problem became more acute because uh, even though there were 
more people now, but there's same number of official posts, right? And it just means uh, this is uh, one governor now have to administer to more number of people, but with the same budget he had before. And and so there's a lot of governance problem in China. There's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, the Malthusian problem, ecological problem. And to to compound that, you know, then you have what what made really propel Ch- Europe decisively over China was the Industrial Revolution. And Industrial Revolution happened in in England for various for a host of reasons. I I recommend people to read the book A Great Divergence by Kenneth Pomeranz, which is which really explains the great divergence between China and Europe at this time. But the result of Industrial Revolution is that now. There's a qualitative difference between the power of British Empire uh, versus the Chinese Empire. That's why China was defeated in the in the two Opium Wars and and many other wars after. And that you know foreign depredation plus uh, the Opium ep- uh, pandemic that brought on by the British only just compounded the the worsening problem in China itself. And also, China had a massive civil war. That's the Taiping Rebellion. That's the bloodiest conflict in the 19th century. Uh, You know, I see estimate between like anywhere between 20 million to 100 million people die. I think 100 million is way too long too high to unrealistic but we could get it's so deep into the weeds in the Taiping rebellion hung shu kwan is just such an amazing character and it's such a wild moment in history exactly exactly so so contrast china and japan uh japan the the boshing war which was a war to overthrow the shogun government was relatively brief uh, it happened very quickly whereas you know Taiping rebellion was drawn out tens of millions of people died uh, most of the China's most richest area the Yangtze Delta was totally devastated and so chi- China had to recover from that with a much weaker government for all the reason I, I listed before you know because you know but China did launch its own modernization program Program. At around the same time, Japan's Meiji Restoration. So, so, but China's self-restraining program was handicapped in the in the case that the the reformist faction in Chinese court always have to butt their heads against a conservative faction who didn't want any change. Whereas Japan, the the conservative faction got done away with basically in a revolution, and the reformist faction took control, and that's why they were able to push through this whole uh, top-down modernization program. But in, in China, this was, you know, the, the reformist faction did not control the course. They had to, they have to contain with all these conservatives who, who are resistant to change. So the, the so in a way, the Chinese self-strengthening uh, program was kind of half-hearted, especially compared to Japan. And that became increasingly obvious by the end of the First Sino-Japanese War, when the both state who were in the modernization program, you showed the, basically the superiority of the Japanese program in the end. You know, on the on the battlefield. Yeah, at the, Japan just Japan because of the fact that have a civil war and revolution had done away with these systems that were holding China back and limiting it and limiting the the scope of its reform program. My own personal assessment is that the problem goes back to the reign of the Kangxi Emperor uh, in the early 18th century. Uh, who had believed that the reforms had made China so prosperous that 
taxes would never need to be raised again. The amount of revenue remained constant, even as uh, the population of China ballooned and the size of the bureaucracy also remained uh, the same. And so because of this, this is really the root of all these compounding problems, I would say. Yeah, I remember somebody did a study comparison between kind of the the tax tax rate in China versus uh, other nations like Japan and, and, and England. China had the lowest taxes at the time. I mean, like China was basically a libertarian's paradise in the 19th century, but it didn't work out as you can see. Yeah. So yes, you had a bunch of these uh, attempts to reform China. You had the famous 100 days reform period in 1897, but that was cut short by the court, which was run by Sishi, who is um, another figure you could do an entire episode on. But as a result of uh, this humiliating defeat of China, the blame wasn't put at Japan's feet for having instigated this war, but rather on the Manchu Qing emperors who were, you know, foreigners. Yeah, in case people don't know, the uh, the Qing dynasty was not ethnically Han, or rather the emperors were not ethnically Han. Although I'm pretty sure they were fairly assimilated. So Japan actually helped in this, that uh, during the first Sino-Japanese war, they actively propagated the idea that, you know, China has strayed from this ancient heritage because it got corrupted by these conquering barbarians like the Manchus. And he also supported, uh, you know, the, the revolutionaries like Sun Yat-sen, who kind of centered their, their revolution on uh, anti-Manchu Han nationalism, that Japan is actually trying to get rid of China's Manchu rulers. They're not waging war against China and Chinese per se. They're waging war against Manchus. That That's the Ch- Japanese propaganda, of course. But, you know, some people apparently bought into it. And at the time, Time, Qing government did try to reform after the Boxer Rebellion very belatedly, you know, after 1900. So a lot of the reforms of uh, the uh, reformist agenda that was first put forth under the first 100 Days Reform were later uh, implemented uh, in 1902 uh, under the ch- new new uh, reform uh, of the, the Qing government. But one, it's too late. And two, there's a, the reform also stir up a lot of discontent. And at the time, revolutionary like Sun Yat-sen, they found out the best way to rally the support against the Qing government is still the anti-Manchu slogan. So they focused on that, made that uh, you know, the, the, the major platform of, uh, of overthrow, overthrowing the Qing government is uh, based on the Han nationalism. Yes, there were many different uh, revolutionaries, some of whom had links to Japan, others who didn't. But of course, the most prominent of these was uh, Sun Yat-sen, who was a revolutionary who was forced into exile after launching a failed uprising in Guangdong in 1895. And he would spend many years all over the world, primarily Japan. So Japan, around this time, after the Sino-Japanese War, had become a nesting ground for Chinese student revolutionaries. And the Japanese were interested in stoking this uh, basic feeling of Pan-Asianism, which, I mean, it technically was Pan-Asianism, but Pan-Asianism under whose tutelage is the question. But um, yeah, so tens of thousands of Chinese students went to Japan to receive an education over there. And in 1905, uh, Sun Yat-sen, with the support of the Japanese government, founded the Tongmenghui, uh, which was uh, a fusion of a number of Chinese student revolutionary societies. And among the earliest disciples of Sun Yat-sen was a man named Wang Jingwei, who would ultimately become the head of the Chinese collaborationist government with Japan. 
Well, yeah, Wang Jingwei is.、Uh, this is when you. This is why you you need to choose when you should when you should die. If, if Wang Jingwei had died in the in the early 1900s, he would have died a hero. Uh, you know, one of the famous uh act of Wang Wang Jingwei in the during the Qin Dynasty era is he went to assassinate at, at the time uh the regent. Uh, because the Empress Cixi died, uh, and and on his order, he had the Emperor also poisoned. So so that way, the the only um the throne get passed down to like a a a, a child, a baby, Puyi. But of course, Puyi can can rule China. He's it's done by Puyi's father, the, the Regent. So what、um, Wang Jingwei did, he went to assassinate the, the Imperial A Regent, and he failed, and. So more surprisingly, Regent spared his life because he also know at the time there's a lot of discontent in China, a lot of the、uh, revolution is brooding in the air. So he wanted to show his magnanimity by by sparing the man's the assassin's life. So so Wang Jingwei was spared、uh, of being a martyr. <laughs> you know, he if he he got killed, he would have been a martyr at that moment. But Uh, unfortunately, he lived on. Yeah, so Wang, he was、uh, very handsome. He was a very gifted orator. He had a knack for poetry, and he was very successful in creating this image of himself as a selfless man who was ready to give his life for China. Wang wrote poetry that burnished his own image as a patriot willing to die to save China from the dynasty which oppressed it. To explain his turn to violence, Wang referred to the newspaper editorials he wrote as a young man studying in Japan. These articles were written in ink, declared Wang. I wanted to translate them into blood. The combination of melodrama and commitment was typical of the man. Driven, ambitious, vain, and also shaped by a streak of recklessness, Wang's willingness to throw the dice when the odds were long would when the odds were long would shape his political life all the way into wartime. Yeah, so、uh, they decided not to execute him, even though he had come very close to killing Prince Chun. But luckily for him, a year after this happened,、uh, the Xinhai Revolution、uh, was launched and the Qing、uh, government was overthrown. And and in fact,、uh, Wang had such a mystique around him that Yuan Shikai,、uh, who would become the first president of China, he is the fir first president of the Republic of China. <laughs> yes, initially he wanted to、uh, make Wang the premier, but、uh, Wang turned him down. And、uh, despite、uh, very high hopes for this Republican government, it just didn't really go anywhere. Yuan Shikai、uh, ultimately was not a fan of the whole democracy thing, and he decided to make himself the new emperor, <laughs> basically. And as a result of that,、uh, although he he was、uh, forced out of power very quickly,、uh, nevertheless, China had become fractured by this point, and this is when the era of the warlords really begins. As the opening line of of、uh, of Romance of the Three Kingdoms says, "Um, a kingdom long divided must unite; a kingdom long united must divide." And so, this is a recurring theme in、uh, Chinese history, and this is exactly what happens right now.、Uh, we already explained all the problem with the Qing government, but after the Taiping Rebellion, more power was、uh, devolved from the center to regional governors who had to who were called upon to suppress the rebellion. So, so there's a you know the the warlordism. Had its roots at the end of the Taiping Rebellion, and after the collapse of Qing government, that became more rooted.、Uh, you know, as different regional governors have, you know, their own own armies, and they control the revenue within their own provincial borders. And you, with with Yuan Shikai's death, the whole country was. 
becoming. Uh, you just imagine China as a larger version of, of Afghanistan from 1916 Yuan Shikai's death to about 1930s, and there's different factions of warlords fighting over control. There's warlords in Manchuria, warlords controlling northern China, warlords controlling Yangtze Delta, warlords can- controlling Canton. There's like warlords in every province. And my, you know, for my own personal anecdotal story, if I may tell it, my great grandmother was a concubine of an officer in the Yunnanese warlord army. And they came to Chongqing because Yunnanese, this was uh, during the time when Yuan Sikai declared himself emperor. So the Yunnan warlord Cai E became the first to take up arms against the uh, uh, Yuan Sikai government. So he took the Yunnanese army into Sichuan uh, and the Yunnanese uh, army occupied most of the Sichuanese cities, including Chongqing. But then in 1920s, the Sichuanese warlords got their act together. They defeated the Yunnanese uh, army, pushed them out of out of Sichuan. But that's when my great grandmother got stranded all alone in Chongqing, and that's when she agreed to marry my great great grandpa. So that's how I come come to be um, during this kind of incessant warfare uh, in China at the time. And then uh, these different warlords are also backed by different imperial powers. There's like the British back warlords. Uh, it, mostly British American interests are, are, are mostly aligned. Uh, so there's British American back warlords, and there's also Japanese back warlords in Manchuria, particularly Zhang Zhuoding. Um, Zhang Zhuoding was a bandit during the Russo Japanese War, and he became a Qing official when he went legit. And then after the collapse of Qing Empire, he basically carved himself a huge fiefdom of all of Manchuria with the financial backing of the Japanese who expect him to do their betting. And at that time, Japan already had a lot of influence in Manchuria. You know, after the Russo-Japanese War, they gained control of the Southern Manchurian Railway. And as per treaty specified in the 1900 Boxer Rebellion, Japan was entitled to post their military all along this railroad from Port Arthur, which was first leased to Russia, but now leased to Japan because after the Russo-Japanese War, basically a Japanese colony and then all runs all the way through uh, to the city of Changchun. So all, all along the Southern Manchurian Railway, the Japanese post their own Guangdong army to quote-unquote safeguard it. And Zhang Zhuodin, the warlord in Manchuria, was Japan's man. So at this time, uh, 1918, 19, we, we know the, the Russian revolution broke out. And after the establishment of Soviet Russia, because Russia, Soviet Russia was besieged on all sides by the so-called Allied powers, um, they, you know, Allied powers even send the intervention into Far East, uh, into Siberia, uh, and even included the. The, the the British American back Chinese warlord forces <laughs> they had a quite tense standoff in Vlad- Vladivostok with the Japanese because the Japanese sent the largest contingent into Siberia but you know at the time the, the, the tension between Japan and China was quite already quite high the uh, at one point the Chinese warship threatened to bombard the, the Japanese army position in Vladivostok <laughs> um, yeah even though they're ostensibly allies on paper and then um, so the Soviet ally uh, uh, Russia wanted to break out through their diplomatic isolation and 
Uh, and what they did is they they tried to support all the uh, these national liberate nationalist movement all around the world. First with uh, Kemal uh, in, in, in yeah, other Turk in Turkey. Uh, they also tried to do the same thing in uh, in China and they decided to support Sun Yat-sen because uh, at this time Sun Yat-sen went to Guangdong and set up his own government in Guangzhou or at the time called, also called Canton in uh, in English. And, and Sun Yat-sen's can So Soviet gave money weapons to Sun Yat-sen to set up his, his government base in Guangdong in southern China. And so Soviet, Soviet actually told um, Sun Yat-sen, you know, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you don't have your own army. That's why you have to rely on all these different Chinese warlords and they always constantly backstab you. But don't worry, we will help you. We will help you train a KMT army. So the Soviet advisor helped set up the Wangpua Military Academy in Guangzhou. And Sun Yat-sen, uh, with the caveat, of course, that Sun Yat-sen's uh, KMT must form an alliance with the Chinese communists. So <clears throat> the Soviet advisor set up Wangpua Military Academy and Sun Yat-sen set his, one of his right-hand men Zhang Kai-shek to be the commandant or the principal of the Wangpa Military Academy. And the political director of the Wangpa Military Academy is a Chinese communist, Zhou Enlai. And with this joint C- uh, CPC-KMT uh, project, the Canton government in 1927 started northern expedition against uh, Chinese warlords backed by, you know, other imperialist powers and they the the northern expedition was a resounding success because they, they soon pushed from Guangdong north uh, into the Yangtze River Valley and that's where Jiang Kai-shek decided to make a split with the communists. Uh, when the when the communist trade unions staged an insurrection to took, take over Shanghai from the warlords and, and welcome the KMT army to come to Shanghai, Jiang Kai-shek allied with the Shanghai uh, triads, the, 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 the underworld green gang, to massacre the, 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 the communists. Oh, the opium traffickers. Yes, the opium and heroin traffickers. At that time, China was, uh, because after the opium war, British forced China to legalize opium trade. So the Chinese official then say, okay, if we're going to legalize opium trade, we're going to legalize everything. That like, Why let the uh, foreigners make all the money um, importing Indian opium? We should allow the Chinese farmer to plant opium themselves. And then uh, in, in a couple of decades, the Chinese opium surpassed the Indian opium and became you know the largest opium producing region in the world. And and then uh, heroin was uh, discovered to to become uh, people learn how to extract morphine from opium than from from morphine to make heroin. So green gang in Shanghai they would trans uh, they would ship opium raw opium from Sichuan, my home province where it's grown. Ship put them on boats just ship down the Yangtze River to Shanghai where they have secret factories in Shanghai. Uh, process them into heroin and export them to United States to the West Coast. And all over the world, actually. And and the Green Gang was in close alliance with Jiang Kai-shek. So they did the massacre of the communists in Shanghai in 1927. But the Northern Expe- Expedition continued. They, they swept away most of the Chinese warlord. But the warlord I mentioned earlier uh, in Manchuria, Zhang Zuolin, who was backed by the Japanese, he vacated Beijing. He went back to Manchuria. And the Japanese Kwantung Army considered him a failure. So they decided... 
to kill him. They, they assassinated him by blowing up his train going back to Manchuria. I think in attempt to kind of take a more direct control of Manchuria. But but the son of Zhang Zhuolin, uh, Zhang Xueliang, decided, you know what? If the Jap- Japanese is going to go against me, I'm going to go with a KMT. So he publicly swore allegiance to Chiang Kai-shek. He met Chiang Kai-shek. He actually swore brotherhood with Chiang Kai-shek. And he ordered his his Manchurian army to s- change their flag and switch the to the KMT colors. So officially, by 1928, officially, China was um, united. But but on, on, that's only on the surface. Uh, beneath that, there's w- w- warlords still control like different provinces in China. They just became part of the apparatus. Exactly. They just, uh, you know, nominally swear allegiance to the KMT. But in, in reality, they still control the reality on the ground. What happened to the other Japanese warlords after the expedition? Did they flee to Japanese lines? Did they join the KMT? Well, the the main one is uh, the Manchurian warlord Zhang Zhang Xueliang, right? Because after his father got killed, he decided to go over KMT. There 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 are a couple others one, but the they uh, you know famous one is Zhang Zongcang. You know some. Some internet memer like him because call him the basis Chinese general for some reason. But he oh, is he the dog meat general? Dog meat general, yes. He was uh, he was he was dead long before then. Uh, he he was dead very soon afterwards. Um, so that's why the Jap- Japanese would decide to take matter, the, especially the Guangdong Army officers would decide to take matter into their own hand in 1931. So this again, like China was not really united because the different warlords will soon fight uh, you know fight a big battle called the central plain wars so so the the anti Chiang Kai-shek alliance between the San Shi warlord Yan Shi-san and uh, Feng Yuxiang they decide to battle out the KMT or the Chiang Kai-shek's KMT they're all KMT they're just different KMT so so they the, the, the they battle out Chiang Kai-shek's forces you know like over a million men were involved in uh, in central China at that time the Manchurian warlord Zhang Xueliang decided, okay, this is my chance to uh, reassert ourselves. So he took the bulk of the Manchurian army, crossed the Great Wall into Beijing, and he came down on the side of Chiang Kai-shek, and, and that helped the Chiang Kai-shek to, to achieve a victory over the other warlords. But at the same time, the Guangdong army, the Japanese Guangdong army, sees the opportunity to launch the Mukudan incident in 1931. They blow... Um, ah, the false flag. Yes, they claim that their their soldiers was missing. The Southern Manchurian Railway was attacked by blowing up. They blow them, uh, They blow it up themselves and they blame the Chinese. And they then the launch the Mukudan incident to attack, attack the Manchurian garrisons. And then Zhang Xueliang, at this point... He still enjoy a very close association with a lot of the Japanese politicians. And through his contact, he knew that what the Guangdong army did was an unauthorized operation. You know, it was, it was done by the Guangdong, Guangdong army officers. It wasn't authorized by the Japanese government. So he thought he could solve the problem diplomatically. So he ordered his troops to stand down and do not resist the Japanese because he thought he could, you know, like he was sure his Japanese politician buddies will calm the Guangdong army down and tell them to go back to the barracks. But that didn't happen because the Japanese Guangdong army army at the time was totally out of the control you know the, the japanese militarists basically hijacked their government policy at this point so the no resistance policy by zhang xueliang basically made their job much easier they effectively took over all of manchuria in 1931 
and Manchuria became a Japanese colony, basically. And, and they founded the first puppet government in Manchuria on their so-called Manchu Guo with the head, uh, the puppet head. With uh, they they shipped the last emperor Pu Yi out of Tianjin to Manchuria to become the puppet emperor of Manchu Guo, and that's that's like the first collaborationist regime. In China. Before we continue, I would like to rewind a little bit to our boy Wang Jingwei. Oh yes, yes. So let me add a little bit more background story. So Sun Yat-sen's、uh, pro-Soviet policy was orchestrated by Sun Yat-sen's trusted confidant, the leader of left-wing KMT, Liao Liao Chengkai. But after Sun Yat-sen's death, Liao Bing, the senior KMT leader, was expected to take over. But Liao has many enemies, especially because he is architect of the KMT Soviet alliance. And then Liao was assassinated shortly after Sun Yat-sen's death, so that left a, a, a power vacuum. And at the time, there's、uh, the right-wing KMT who wanted to take over, but they they are the Prime suspect in the Liao's assassination, so Wang Jingwei then became the acceptable kind of candidate to all sides. So Wang Jingwei became officially the head of the Canton government, even though he was very young. But the military power is controlled in the hands of Jiang Kai-shek by the fact that he was the commandant of the Wangpa Military Academy. So he basically controlled the KMT army. So there was um there's a kind of unease. Tension between the Wang Jingwei and Jiang Kai-shek at this point, because even though Wang Jingwei is officially the the head of KMT, but Jiang Kai-shek was it's it's、uh, you know controls the military, and and also there's a growing rift between Jiang Kai-shek and the Soviet advisors, because the right wing KMT wanted to throw the Soviet out, but the Jiang Kai-shek at this point he 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 was still trying to appear as a centrist, you know at the time Jiang Kai-shek wasn't appear as a right wing KMT. <laughs> Jiang Kai-shek was a centrist KMT. His son was a classmate of Deng Xiaoping. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he sent his son to Soviet Union in 1927. Yeah, and, and so Jiang Kai-shek launched his coup in 1927 in Shanghai to purge all the communists. At that time, Wang Jingwei went to Wuhan. Uh, because at the time the the Wuhan uh the KMT government. Get, move their capital from Guangzhou in southern China to Wuhan, and after the Jiang Kai-shek's、uh, massacre in Shanghai, the left-wing KMT formed their government in Wuhan and made Wuhan its capital, and then made Wang Jingwei the head of the Wuhan government. So KMT in 1927 had two government: one the Wuhan government headed by Wang Jingwei, and one the Nanjing government headed by Jiang Kai-shek.、Um, and, and so this is、uh, this would persist. Uh, because Wuhan government still had the Soviet backing at this point, but this is this is a point where I never understood why. So Stalin sent a letter to the with instruction to the to the to the representative of Kami intern in in Wuhan government, and they told them like basically at the time they need to bide their time. They need to work with the work with the KMT from the inside. In the Wuhan government, but eventually, because right now Communist Party is still small in number, but eventually, using the structure of the KMT, once the Communists grow strong enough, they can just take over. And now, for whatever reason, the Kami Inter representative Roy decide to show this secret telegram to Wang Jingwei. 
And Wang Jingwei was shocked, and he he realized, you know, Soviets just using KMT as a shell basically to grow the communists in secret. So Wang Jingwei then ordered his own purge and massacre of the communists in Wuhan, expel all the commie intern representatives, and uh, you know break the tie with the Soviet Union. And later, the Wuhan government and the Nanjing government eventually. You know, come together to become one again. Yeah. So again, there's this、uh, long-seated rivalry between Wang Jingwei and Chiang Kai-shek, and they sort of have an on-again, off-again relationship. Where、uh, Chiang lets Wang into the government,、uh, he's formal head at one point, then he's purged, then he's brought back in, and this just goes on and on for for years, and ultimately、uh, back to、uh, the Japanese invasion. When the Japanese invade Manchuria, there is a massive debate within the Kuomintang as to what is to be done about the Japanese. And I find this moment really、uh, interesting because、uh, a Wang Jingwei,、um, I'm in retrospect as the one who actually created the collaborationist government.、Um, at this point, people start pointing the finger at him as the person who is for accommodation with the Japanese. And on the one hand, this is true; he supported accommodation with the Japanese. But at the same time, this was also Chiang Kai-shek. Exposition, and it just feels like、uh, Wang Jingwei was unfairly tarred with that accusation, even though it's、uh, it was part of a much bigger problem. Well, Kim, Chiang Kai-shek's KMT government had been in contact with the Japanese till until. Pearl Harbor. <laughs> I mean, all throughout the time they were in negotiate, negotiate, secret negotiate with Japanese. But but what happened was that each Japanese battle victory, the Japanese demand goes higher and higher.、Uh, so the Chiang Kai-shek side just found it too, the demand too high to accept, and that's why the the, the negotiation dragged on. But after Pearl Harbor. Chiang Kai-shek realized Japan is going to lose, so then he called off the secret negotiation. Yeah, and one facet of Japanese policy that's often not mentioned but is important to keep in mind is that the Japanese basically did not recognize China because, although of course there was a national government,、uh, ostensibly led by Chiang Kai-shek and、uh, Kuomintang, in reality the facts on the ground were such that. You know, this was a medley、uh, of warlords, and the Japanese quite liked that position to have to deal with、uh, these people on a province by province basis, rather than dealing with a united China. Weak states are easy to pillage. I mean, look at Somalia today, or Afghanistan, or in, until the Taliban take over. There's a like if it if you have a weak central government and a lot of resources. It's really good for colonizing power. Yeah, Japan actually started propping a series of puppet regimes. You know, the first one was Manchukuo, but they they started to pop one in Inner Mongolia. They popped up another one in northern China. So before before they even like.、Um, Created one for Wang Jingwei in Nanjing. They already have like different puppet regimes all over China in the area under their control. I、um, mean, so when war finally breaks out formally、um, in 1937 with with the Marco Polo Bridge incident, which was again、uh, a provocation staged by the Japanese to make it seem like、uh, the Kuangtung Army was under attack, and so they have no choice but to go in and take Beijing. And once they have taken Beijing, they basically control the heart of the country because it was out of Beijing that all of the rail networks of China、uh, were operating. So by by gaining a foothold in Beijing, they basically ensure that no other element could gain primacy over all of China, and they just continued their expansion southward. 
And as Carl said, they set up these good old puppet governments everywhere. But ultimately, uh, I mean, 1938, uh, Wang Jingwei, he openly defects uh, from the Kuomintang. And he decides that he's fed up with everything he's been dealing with. Like, uh, like in 1935, there was a very serious assassination t- attempt on his life, which almost killed him, which was probably ordered by Chiang Kai-shek. And so at this point, he just says, all right, I have nothing to lose. Uh, let's just uh, go over to the Japanese. And ultimately, in 1940, he would become the head of the so-called uh, reorganized national government of China, which is really a very interesting entity. The idea was to consolidate all of these different uh, states that the Japanese had set up under one umbrella, really. Um, aside from Manchukuo, uh, Manchukuo remained distinct, but the other uh, Chinese territories were consolidated uh, under the Wang Jingwei regime. I just realized Wang Jingwei was on the cover of 1935 Time magazine. <laughs> I also like to point out that he left... Chongqing, uh, the, the wartime capital of China, to go to the Japanese side just in the same year that the Nanjing massacre happened. Uh, I, I, like this is this he and 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 also he's he actually had to take effort to go to the Japanese side. You, you know, it, it wasn't easy just to go from Chongqing to the Jap, Japanese occupied territory. He went to first. He went to Yunnan. Right, which is another province controlled by a Chinese warlord Long Yun, and then Long Yun helped him to get on the train to travel from Kunming to to Hanoi to French Indochina, and then from French Indochina, then he he went to meet the Japanese. Uh, so so he actually spent a lot of time and effort to plan his uh, defection to Japan. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't like you know he was. Uh, somehow captured by the Japanese and and uh, you know made to made to head this new puppet government. He willingly went over to 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 work with the Japanese. But let's talk about his motivations for a bit. To me, it seems like following his own worldview, what he was doing rationally made sense because he was doing this out of the conviction that China is a mess, that the Kuomintang government is in shambles, it can't control anything, and that rather than fighting a war against Japan, it would make more sense to uh, to join the Japanese uh, sphere of influence to consolidate China under uh, and with the help of the Japanese to later, further down the path, give China a chance to assert its own destiny. Like, in retrospect, it does seem patently absurd, especially knowing what the Japanese would go on to do and the kinds of massacres that they would commit, which totally flew in the face of their idea that they were liberating Asia from from Europe. And it was really just new management, same as the old management. Like, there's a certain logic to this, and it's similar to what people in other places that would get colonized by Japan would do, like in the Philippines and in Indonesia and in Vietnam. I, I would I would point out there is a big major difference. Uh, it's true. There's, you know, people in places like Indonesia, also in Myanmar, uh, the nationalist leaders collaborated with Japanese because they wanted to throw out the former colonial power out of power. You know, in Indonesia was a Dutch, in in Myanmar was a British. China was not a full colony before the Japanese came. I mean, in, granted, you know, you know, British and and, and, and American were you know playing 
footsie with the, some Chinese warlords. But China was not a full colony. You know, Japan didn't come to China to liberate these places from from the Euro-American colonial powers. China had its own government. Granted, it's not the perfect government. Uh, it's pretty shitty government actually. But but still, it you know, it's not like the British in Myanmar or the Dutch Indonesia. So so I I, I think that is a crucial difference. Between places like the Philippines, Dutch East Indies, and and Myanmar, because those places were full colonies. You know, Philippines was under the was a U.S. colony. Indonesia was a Dutch colony. Uh, Myanmar was a British colony. China was not a colony. Yeah, yeah. So this difference actually leads to some very interesting phenomena, namely like the fact that uh, that the Wang Jingwei regime was actually like rooted very heavily in Guomindang imagery, like in the same way that Mao Zedong and Jiang Kai She uh, would fight over the legacy of Sun Yat-sen, that that he is their progenitor and they are merely following in his path. Wang Jingwei was doing the same thing. He had pointed to uh, Sun Yat-sen's earlier pan-Asianist sentiments to argue that this is the way forward. This is what Sun Yat-sen would have wanted, and therefore I am legitimate. I am creating the government that Sun would have uh, loved to see. I mean, yes, he would say that, right? I mean, to, to justify his own own position. I mean, there's an, even another justification for his action, claiming that what he's trying to do is trying to ameliorate uh, kind of the condition under Japanese occupation. By putting himself as the head of a puppet regime, he was able to cushion some of the more harsh blow of the Japanese occupation. Which my, my take is that, yes, he would say that. Of course he would say that. It's obviously not true, and whether he even believed it is an interesting question, but that is certainly what his justification would be. Yeah, I mean, like the reason why he, you know, he had so much prestige in the KMT is because he had seniority. I mean, technically, he had more seniority than Jiang Kai-she because when he was assassinating the regent, Jiang Kai-she was still a little hooligan, <laughs> you know, trying to make it in the Shanghai gangland. And and so, so you know, so he's like the old school KMT. He has a lot of, you know, he was well respected, too. I mean, that that actually granted a lot of legitimacy to the Japanese puppet government by agreeing to be its head. Yeah, quite a few Chinese would join the Wang Jingwei regime. Uh, something like 900,000 uh, people fought in the Wang Jingwei regime's uh, military. Uh, but these were mostly auxiliaries. The Japanese never really sent them to fight. They were instead engaged in what have been very euphemistically called uh, the rural pacification campaigns, which is basically going into these rural, rural places where there were partisan movements, uh, which were making it difficult for the Japanese to consolidate their rule and just massacring people. And in a way, like, while for some Chinese, there was, of course, the element of Wang Jingwei as a successor of Sun Yat-sen, to others in these more rural parts rather than the urban parts, uh, uh, Wang Jingwei was really like someone who was doing the Japanese bidding and who was massacring them at massive rates. Yeah, of course. I mean, like his past prestige within KMT, uh, you know, this might mean something to the urban residents in, in China who may, may be like consumer of newspapers, mass media, etc. But to the to the rural villagers, it means nothing. <laughs> the only thing they know is these puppet troops are coming to their village and burning the crops and, and torturing their, their relatives. So, yeah. 
Maybe to return to the movie, one of the most evocative scenes was the scene in the Japanese brothel where Yi invites uh, Wang Anzhi uh, to a brothel, which is used by Japanese officials and collaborators. And suddenly he's just bearing his heart out to her. Like this is someone who is very paranoid. And finally, he has a person in his life whom he could trust fully. And he says to her, these Japanese devils kill people like flies, but deep down they're scared as hell. All our days are numbered since the Americans entered the war. Yet here we are with our painted faces listening to their off-tuned songs. And this is the moment where Yi in the movie goes from being this total monster to someone who's actually quite sympathetic. He says that he brought Wang there because he knows better than her how to be a whore. Uh, so basically, at this point, you see that, like, this is someone who's very conflicted about his role for this, uh, working for this collaborationist government. I think that's where it becomes less believable for me, given the actions he's taken. Like, he explicitly says, uh, now that America has entered the war, Japan's days are numbered. So it's sort of a buyer's remorse. Yeah, I, I think, I think uh, you know, as you mentioned, there were a large number who work in the collaborationist regime, you know, either as uh, puppet soldiers or administrators. Uh, you have to remember, most people, they tend to back the stronger horse, right? I mean, this was no different. They, 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 they thought, initially, they thought Japan was going to win because, you know, here is a very highly modernized uh, industrial power. China was no match, was hopeless outmatched. So, a natural assumption on some people's part that, you know, Japan is going to win and, and they better accommodate the new power that be. And then with the, of course, with American entry into the war, that that changed the equation and it's too late for these people to, to kind of back out, so to speak. I read an interview with Ang Lee where he talks about uh, the making of this movie. He really clarifies something for me as someone who doesn't really know Chinese and who can't read uh, the novel in the original language. In Chinese, we have the figure of a tiger who kills a person. Thereafter, the person's ghost willingly works for the tiger, helping him to lure more prey into the jungle. The Chinese phrase for this is Wei Hu Zuo Chang. It's a common phrase and was often used to refer to the Chinese who collaborated with the Japanese occupiers during the war. In the story, Zhang has Yi allude to this phrase to describe the relationship between men and women. Alive, Jia Zi is his woman. Dead, she is his ghost, his Chang. But perhaps she already was one when they first met, and now, from beyond the grave, she is luring him closer to the tiger. Interestingly, the word for tiger's ghost sounds exactly like the word for prostitute, so in the movie, in the Japanese tavern scene, Yi refers to himself with this word. It could refer to his relationship to the Japanese. He is both their whore and their chung, which means he knows he is already a dead man. Yeah, I mean, like, um, so this Wei Hu Zuo Zhang, this, uh, this originated, uh, the original idiom is, as you mentioned, about the ghost. I think, but I think this, this uh, idiom has been so widely used. I think probably a lot of people not even aware of the, of the original story background. But Wei Fu Zhuozhang just means somebody who is willingly to, to help the, the bully. To, uh, you know, that's, that's, because that's, that's what he's doing. That's, he's being a, he's a, being a willing accomplice to the Japanese. Yes, nevertheless, Angui tries to show him as 
a conflicted person because, well, I mean, of course he's conflicted now that he's on the losing side, but uh, the Wang Jingwei uh, government was also interesting. Like, the slogan of the government was really peace, anti-communism, and nation-building. And so, ostensibly, under this slogan, this meant that they were unwilling to to fight the army uh, of Chiang Kai-shek because, ostensibly, they want peace, when, in reality, it's just that this is a very poorly equipped army that can't really stand up against an organized military force, so they're sort of just left in the countryside to massacre people, which speaks very loudly to uh, what exactly this regime was about. Uh, And yeah, like formally, another interesting aspect is that this regime did not go to war against anyone formally until 1943, when they finally like declared war against the Allies. But up until that point, like, they were very much pushing on this, we are the peace faction, we are the China unification faction uh, talking point. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the, the, what what else can they say, right? The, 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 we're going to say that because we are more legitimate than Chiang Kai-shek. I mean, okay, but you're backed by the Japanese, so they they have to f- emphasize on the peace, right? So, so because that that's something. Of course, you know, people are sick and tired of the the ravage of war that has been brought on by the last few years, and. This is this is their PR campaign, basically. <laughs> I mean, what what else can they say? Yeah, would have been a lot more effective if they weren't acting the way they were. But what becomes of this regime ultimately? Well, I mean, after the Japanese surrender, it just basically falls apart. I mean, luckily for Wang Jingwei, he died just before that. He died at the very end of the war, but before the Japanese surrender. And uh, he's there, there's uh, actually Xiang um, Yu, uh, who's a Taiwanese communist, who made an interesting observation that because Wang Jingwei went to Japan for treatment, it would be ironic if he just lived a little bit longer, then he would be obliterated in the atom bomb. And that would be a that would be a you know the the proper end for him, but you know he 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 died before that. He died one year before that. So how has Wang Jingwei been remembered? Oh, he's been remembered as like the Benedict Arnold of China. Of course, <laughs> he's like the biggest trader. The, the the name for trader in Chinese Han Jian, right? But Wang Jingwei's name is basically synonymous right now <laughs> with, with with trader. Uh, modern modern day trader. What are how are Japanese collaborators on the lower levels thought of? People who serve in the the army, for example. Right. So I mean, because so many work in the collaborator. Uh, again, you know, some of them are kind of double Asian or are, are, are you know working on for other sides as well. Another factor is that immediately after the Japanese surrender, basically the Chinese Civil War started. You know, the both sides try to recruit, especially Manchuria. Uh, not 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 so 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 much in, in the rest of China. Uh, in Manchuria, uh, both sides recruited these uh, former puppet troops into their ranks in fighting the civil war. But that that would go badly for the communists because when the communists fought their first um, first big decisive battle in Manchuria, all the former puppet troops units is basically defected in mass. Like the whole regiments will go over to the KMT because. KMT had the had the better, bigger firepower. So, you know, they these are the people who always go for the stronger 
backers of the stronger horse, right? So there's no reason for them <laughs> to stay loyal to the communists. They just went, they went in droves to join the KMT. Uh, that's less the case in the other parts of China, because particularly in northern China, because the, the communist guerrilla has been fighting these collaborators for 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 you know eight years of the war, so there's a very little love lost between the two groups. So so yeah, so most of the collaborators uh, in 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 northern China who joined the KMT, you know, uh, right away basically, because they know the communists will will liquidate them if they get caught. I wonder if any of them end up in uh, in Taiwan after the retreat. Oh, some of them, sure. I mean, KMT did execute some high profile. Uh, collaborators you have to yeah 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 they but but you know kmt is such a way that uh, unless you are like not the most famous known you can just bribe your way out of a death sentence (laughs) that that happens all the time knowing what i know about the kmt it it is unbelievable they they even function given how corrupt they were just from top to bottom yeah i mean i think they 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 did because back then the ch- other Chinese warlords were worse. <laughs> I mean, like they were just—they were just one of the better. They just come off a little bit better compared to the other Chinese warlords. But uh, you know, when when they they're faced with a more organized party like the Chinese Communists, you, you know, of course, eventually they're defeated. Um, is there a difference in the way that uh, this period? Of history is remembered on the mainland versus Taiwan. Um, I don't, I don't think so because Taiwan is a little bit different. Because when the Chiang Kai-shek went to Taiwan after 1949, Chiang Kai-shek's main backers, uh, the two million uh, mainlanders who went with him, the White Chagrin, I'm probably butchering that. Yeah, yeah, White Sengren. They, they still like the the. For a long time, you know, that they were still based on the Chinese nationalist ideology. So, you know, Wang Jingwei is definitely seen as a, as a traitor. Nowadays, uh, Taiwan is a little bit different because among the, the, the Benson and the, the Taiwan provincials who, who have been living on the island before 1945, they have a different um, they have a different experience of the war because during the war, Taiwan was already a Japanese colony, and some of the collaborators on Taiwan, you know, like for example, the former Taiwan leader Li Denghui's family, Li Denghui's brother actually volunteered, not not drafted, volunteered to be in the Japanese Navy, and he. He died in the Battle of Manila against Americans, and he's uh, so he's one of those souls worshiping the Yasukuni Shrine in Japan. And every time Li Denghui goes to Japan, he guess where he goes? He goes to Yasukuni Shrine to uh, visit his brother, to to pay pay respect to his dead brother. And Li Denghui himself volunteered to be an anti aircraft gunner in the Imperial Japanese Army in 1945, like very staged in the war, uh, because at that time. The American bombers based in mainland China already start to bomb Japanese occupied territories like Taiwan. So yeah, so so like that also applied to the current uh, leader of Taiwan, Tsai Ing-wen. Her own dad went to Manchuria to work as a mechanic for the Imperial Japanese Army. (laughs) So, so. So yeah, so 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 there's a different conception there. Just yeah, you know, Taiwan under Japanese rule was it was not like Korea or China. It was still occupation, though, of course. Yeah. What What happened with Taiwan be- is because it became a Jap- Japanese colony early, right after the first Sino-Japanese War. So a lot of the massacre atrocity happened 
early on, uh, in 1895, Japan actually had to fight a war, uh, like an anti-insurgency war on Taiwan. But by 1910, Japan basically had the whole, the most of the island subjugated. Including the indigenous areas? Yes, but there were uprisings in indigenous area in uh, up till 1930s. Basically, by the start of the World War II, Japan had the whole island pacified in their own words, quote unquote. And in fact, uh, right around the time of, uh, World War II started, Japan would uh, push the so-called the Japanization program on Taiwan, the so-called Kominka movement. And to be a Komin, literally an emperor subject, uh, you requires to go through a ritual like where you renounce your Chinese ancestor, adopt a fake Japanese ancestor, uh, change into a Japanese name. But of all the island, only 2% of the island's population went through the full Komin program to become a full-fledged Komin. That's still a very high number. A very a surprisingly high number. But these 2% are the mostly from the island's uh, landed aristocracy, like the landed gentry. Basically, the collaborator family. So the like the family of uh, like the Taiwan, former Taiwan leader Li Denghui and the current leader Tsai Ing-wen. Both of their families are among these 2% collaborator families who, who went to the full process. Let's fast forward a little bit towards the 2010s. Carl, what can you tell us about Jingri? Oh, Jinzi. Uh, okay, so this is a term. This is a term uh, in on Chinese social media. Basically, talk about these uh, kind of the. I don't know what what's the whoa militarist weebs like basically people who are weebs for the Japanese military. <laughs> yeah, I mean like this is my take. I think these are people who are just doing it for attention, you know. Especially uh, like a lot of the online streaming platform, you know, the more outrageous you are, the more clicks you get, and and that drives a lot of people to do all these kind of things. And in Germany, you would have probably laws against, you know, downing, like cosplaying as a Nazi, right? But in China, there, at least before, they, no, there's no laws like that. But but people would do this to get notoriety, to gain, uh, you know, to to to, to draw attention to themselves. Basically, this this is, this is really my take. Cause this is. Uh, there's really no other I, I don't I don't see any other logical explanation for this kind of behavior. I basically see it as analogous to what happened on 4chan where people were just ironically posting Nazi shit until they became actual Nazis. Some, some of these people originally start out uh, I'm talking about the Jinzi people in China uh, so who wanted to stake out a contrarian position. Right and 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 then what's the most extreme contrarian position you can take? Of course, is to stand the Imperial Japanese Army, right? To 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 do a full cosplay of the Imperial Japanese soldier. These people are active on Twitter too. Like I just look at these. I mean, I I don't know. <laughs> I don't I don't understand the psychology. Is there any response from the the Chinese government about this? Is there or they just? I mean, more re- like some some of these posts that have gone viral. Uh, on the Chinese social media, then then you will really draw attention of the authorities. You know that they they then they, I think there's a couple cases where um, you know they were visited by the police. <laughs> they were invited to the police station for tea, um, for 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 these thing, for these kind of things. Usually, um, they they will get some kind of administrative warning. Uh, you know stuff like that. 
Yeah, um, I seem to recall that a couple of years ago, uh, Wang Yi, who's the Chinese foreign minister, said that the Jingri are failures of Chinese people, basically. I mean, he's not wrong. I mean, like, these are just like the dregs of society who are crying out for it's doing anything for attention, basically. Uh, there's a there's a word in Chinese called uh, when the forest is so big, all, you get all kind of birds, you know, like when you have 1.4 billion people in China, they're bound to be some really, you know, just just out there people. I mean, I mean, yeah. Normally, Jinzi, like you say, it's talk about these kind of World War Two larpers. It's not. It's not necessarily like anybody who is like like to watch anime. I mean, because anime has a huge popularity in China, <laughs> you know, like um, especially among the youth. Granted, I I don't speak Chinese, so I can't see this stuff firsthand, but from what I've heard, some Chinese nationalists, they take it very far in the opposite direction and say things like, oh, if you enjoy eating sushi, then you're jingri. <laughs> yeah, there are, I think these people are kind of the flip side of the same coin as these uh, jinzi people, you know, just, just, you know. Just be normal. Yeah, please. <laughs> well, uh, that being said, Carl, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your vast, vast knowledge with us. Uh, would you like to plug anything before you go? Oh, uh, check out my podcast, <laughs> Silk and Steel Podcast. Uh, uh, I, I post uh, most of my free stuff on all the, you know, all the platform, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Podbean, but uh, more my premium contents are on Patreon. So please check it out. Uh, I talk where I talk about China and surrounding regions, history, culture, and politics. If you don't already follow Carl, follow him. Yeah, I, I should post a lot. So be warned. <laughs> and on that note, uh, Carl, thanks again for joining us. And for our dear listeners, we would greatly appreciate it if you like this episode and would like to hear more content like this. Please go to iTunes or Podcast Addict or whatever and leave us a rating and or a review telling people that uh, we are worth listening to. Thanks for listening.